Philippians chapter 1, 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. I'm going to move a little bit closer to you guys. As I do that, kids, I've got a question for you. You know what these are? What are they? Puzzle pieces. Have you ever tried to fit two puzzle pieces together that don't actually fit? We want to find the ones that fit per- perfectly, and we find one that looks similar, so we try to force it in, and you realize, oh, that's not it. I have to go searching again. We want to find the perfect match. We want that also to be true of us. We are kind of like puzzle pieces sometimes. We want what we say and what we do, what we act on, to match like the right puzzle pieces being brought together. And that's what we'll, we'll talk about that today. You might even be, ab- be able to find what it looks like when our life and our words fit perfectly together. Last week, we heard Paul talk, talk about living or possibly dying for Christ. This morning, he turns to the Philippians and calls them to live for Christ and prepares them to suffer for Christ. He says something to them that sums up every other command or exhortation in the rest of this book. We're not that far into Philippians and this is the, the command that sums up all of what else Paul is going to say. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's top priority, Philippians. As people like me get thrown into prison, as you wait for the possibility of me coming to you, as you wonder if you'll be put in prison too, and as you go on working and carrying out other responsibilities, Let your life match the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that it's possible for any one of us to live and behave in such a way that our manner of life does not match the priorities or the message of the gospel of Christ. Scripture is very clear about our lives matching up with our confession. Faith without works is dead. It's a non-existent faith. You cannot serve God and money, no double allegiances. You cannot love God and hate your brother or sister. Being ashamed of Jesus before men leads to him being ashamed of you before his Father in heaven. All these commands and cautions show a clear dividing line, but they also prove to us that we're, we're all in process, that a work has been started in us that God will complete We realize that we need a greater love for Christ to motivate us to follow him more fully. And we see our need for the Spirit 
to cause our lives to correspond seamlessly with the wonderful things and the wonderful God in whom we've believed. But rather than Paul just saying, shape up and get your act together, folks, he's calling us and challenging us in the joy-filled way that Paul does. Brothers and sisters, let your life match the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's calling the Philippians to and us as well. Dan mentioned a few weeks ago that the Philippian church was experiencing some conflicts inside their own church and persecution from outside the church. This passage is mainly focused on how pressure from opponents of the gospel will tempt the Philippians to change how they live to the point where their lives no longer carry the weight of the true good news. I think we'd be naive to say that we haven't experienced or aren't vulnerable to some level of that same pressure. Even in a place where we enjoy the freedom of religion, and we are grateful to God for that, as Tom was praying earlier, we thank God for the fact that we get to do this in a sort of uninterrupted way. And yet, that freedom will not fully protect us from persecution. It's under various types of scorn and hatred of Christ that we must make a double effort to live in a way that accurately bears witness to the good news. So how do we do that? There's a few ways. The first, our new citizenship changes our manner of life. We have to know this first before we can go about living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Our new citizenship changes our manner of life. Paul is hoping to come to the Philippians again if he gets released from prison. But whether he gets the chance to see them or not, like we saw last week, he's, he's fully aware of the possibility that he might be executed. But whether he sees them or not, all that he says in this section, in fact, the whole letter, still stands because what he is calling the Philippians to is obedience in Christ. Whether, whether I follow behind this letter or not, what is in this letter still stands. And with it comes that clear command, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We can say, what does that command mean for us today? It means only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Nonetheless, we still want to know why it matters and where to start. If you look in your Bibles, you might have a footnote in there that says, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's where I'm getting the word citizenship from because that footnote is just another way for us to put this into understandable English. If you think about it, manner of life is a way to describe what someone's behavior ought to look like. And so that's why I want to look at citizenship a little bit more. Also because the same kind of word is used in this verse that is used in Philippians 3.20 but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, heaven, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is who we are, citizens of heaven. That's what determines our manner of life because we belong to the kingdom of Jesus. Have you ever looked at yourself that way, like through that particular lens? I am a citizen of heaven, following Jesus alongside these other citizens of heaven who also belong to Jesus? I guess the better question is, has, have we looked at each other in that, in that light? 
you're a citizen of heaven if you believe in Jesus. There's nothing particularly wrong with saying I'm American or Kenyan or Canadian or Indian or Colombian because that's true. That's where you were born. But you are a citizen of heaven in a more lasting sort of way since Jesus made you a new creation. In other words, your social security card, I think about how that is the first step in getting all sorts of IDs and all sorts of permissions. That's less central to your identity than your citizenship in heaven. I encourage you to look at Psalm 87 this week. It's a short psalm and has become, hands down, one of my all-time favorite psalms. It's this picture of Zion, God's city, and all these people are streaming into Zion. People from Babylon and Philistia, the enemies of Israel. And yet, as they walk in single file, they get new birth certificates as God himself says, this one was born here. This one was born here in God's city. And you belong where he is. When you were born a second time, as Jesus would say, say, you were born into God's family. You are a citizen of heaven. And Paul right here is just inviting us to live as such, to live as citizens. That's why when you're faced with the choice between an allegiance to Christ or our country or Christ and the unethical practice at work or Christ and the peer pressure of friends, we choose Christ. We want to flee sexual immorality like citizens of heaven who have pleasures forevermore already. We want to love one another sincerely like citizens of heaven who have known the greatest love of all. We belong to God and are empowered by the Spirit, no longer slaves to the flesh, but servants of the risen King. We're meant to live worthy of the gospel, but what does Paul mean when he says worthy? We teach in this church what we think Paul is abundantly clear on throughout his letters, which is that not a single one of us, no matter how good or how rich or how smart or how experienced, deserves to hear or believe the saving message of the gospel. We are all on equal footing, equally wicked footing. No one is more worthy or deserving than the next. In fact, no one is righteous and no one deserves to be saved for faith is a gift of God, pure mercy. So why use the word worthy? Our friend, the kilogram, might help us catch the sense of what Paul is talking about here. From 1889 to 2019, so 1889, 2019, over 100 years, we'll say over 100 years, there was a piece of metal known as the international prototype of the kilogram. It's a cylinder, it's about this big. It was a reference to make sure the kilograms being measured on scales all around the world would stay consistent. It needed a reference. If our scales slowly became less and less accurate, especially before they were digital, then we would have a reference to go off of thanks to this heavily protected and well-kept piece of metal. In the same way, to be worthy of the gospel 
is for us to be calibrated properly so that our kilo is the same as the original kilo. So our life matches the proper weight and significance and priorities of the good news. That leads to another question, though. What is that good news? What is the gospel? If my life needs to match something, what is it that I'm aiming for? Is it this formula of Jesus coming, dying, rising, ascending, and returning? If so, how is my life supposed to match that? How is my life supposed to reflect a formula? That's where I found it helpful to see John Piper's summary of how Paul describes this good news, even just within this book that we're studying through together, even just in Philippians. The summary goes like this. The gospel of Christ is the good news that Christ, who is equal with God, became a human being. He obeyed God perfectly, died, rose again, so that by union with him, all who believe will be counted righteous with Christ's righteousness, his obedience, and so be saved from sin and destruction and belong to Christ forever in the resurrection of the dead. We can't start to think about the nitty-gritty of living out the good news if it hasn't gained our attention and if Jesus doesn't have our heart. If the glory of this good news has not sent us spiraling upward in praise and thanks to God, we shouldn't expect our lives to reflect it at all. You are God who came to us. You chose to become human like we are. You did everything the Father requires of people. You obeyed him at every point. And you chose to die and give up your body, your very life in our place. Then in a show of massive power, you rose from the dead so that when we heard your good news, you bound us to yourself and you counted us righteous in the eyes of God as if we had lived Jesus' life. We are saved, delivered from our sin and destruction under your wrath, which at one time we fully deserved. We belong to you forever and you will prove it to us when you raise us from the dead. That's what the rest of this passage and the rest of the book is about. It's about what believing the gospel yields in us and how our lives further mesh with those truths. In this case, it's meant to yield a fully devoted life of standing firm in unity and courage and embracing the privilege of suffering for Christ. Those are our next two points. First, well, this will actually be the second point. Standing firm in unity and courage confirms that God is our Savior and their judge. Verse 27 says this, so that whether I come to you or am, or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Whether Paul sees it with his own eyes or catches word from someone else, he's concerned about a few things being true of the Philippians. What are some of the biggest expressions of the Philippians' lives matching the gospel? Standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not being frightened by opposition. 
Standing firm in one spirit means that in the power of the Holy Spirit, they are like-minded. They are not caving or compromising the truth. They are in agreement with one another. Maybe they're reminding each other of their covenant together, like we did last week at New Members Sunday. They're coming together as often as possible, like we're doing here. They're treating each other as they would want to be treated, which will come up more next week in chapter 2. Friends, our togetherness matters. It matters. And it matters that we are together solely because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never had the chance to stop and think about your own church that way. This group of people that I am a part of has come together because of the saving good news of Jesus Christ and for no other reason. That's why it's a big deal when we're at odds with one another because it's not in line with the reconciling gospel. It's a big deal when we don't meet together because the word tells us we need to encourage one another as the day approaches. It's a big deal when we don't stand firm together and we cave to worldly ideas or practices and stand by and approve of things in our brothers and sisters that aren't Christ-like. Our unity in Christ, this fellowship that we share is itself a witness to the fact that the good news is real and it accomplishes something that people have been trying to accomplish since the beginning. Political parties, social movements, religions, sports teams, races of people, drama clubs, companies, you name a group of people and they have tried and failed to achieve lasting, even eternal unity. And yet, civil wars happen. Bands break up. But Christ church has been graciously given the secret ingredient, the Holy Spirit. Listen to how similar Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 sounds to this passage. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you're a member of this church, let's, let's be eager to maintain the unity that we share. It matters because it says something about the gospel that we believe together. It can also say something about how firmly we really believe it. That's not to say that situations don't change or that leaving is never an option. But it is to say that's the reason why we refuse to speak or hear gossip or slander because it's divisive and it damages that togetherness. That's why we patiently invite brothers and sisters to, who are in sin to repent and return to the Lord. And if not, to no longer be a part of this body because that person is not unified with us in their declaration and their demonstration of the gospel, which grieves us. That unity of the spirit in the bond of peace is something Jesus died for that we love. He died for it. It's important to him and we love it. That's why we enjoy being together. It's why we eat food together and spend time at each other's homes because if we're fractured and fragmented, 
we hide or misrepresent the beautiful reality that Jesus died to gather this mosaic of people to be his forever. And we need the help of the Spirit to cause us to value our church or other believers as a whole, along with each individual member. If you have gone on as a lone wolf Christian and have felt that being committed to other people is not a smart move, nope, it's too risky, too unpredictable and messy, too restricting, too taxing. And if you find yourself in a place where you care very little about your fellow believers, let me warn you that your gospel and your life do not match. Now, I'm not talking about the person who just has a preference to spend time alone rather than with groups of people. That person can still find lots of ways to live out Jesus' command to love one another. I'm talking about the person who would rather selfishly keep their distance. Proverbs says that one who isolates himself seeks his or her own own desires and breaks out against all sound judgment. So when it comes to following Jesus, the one who isolates himself has undervalued what Jesus himself has supremely valued, which is his precious bride. What I would say to you this morning is not get connected. There's, there's all these things, these ways that you can get connected, but rather repent and believe the fullness of the gospel, which invites you into a beautiful body of many members who are all in process just like you, and then strive to be a part of that body, even if it's hard at first. Another way we can align ourselves with the message of Christ is with one mind to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, as Paul says. We're, we're called to have this sort of like mind meld. We're here, we're a local church, now what are we here for? We are here to strive for one another and those outside this body to hear and believe the good news. I think, I think we'd all agree with that statement. So, no matter what your life situation is, if you're a stay-at-home mom or a retiree or you've been working somewhere for who knows how long and your life feels like it's got no focal point, here we are, hearing Paul tell us that we exist to strive together for a major purpose, people growing in or coming to know Jesus Christ. How can you be a part of that right now? What ideas do you have, ways to reach people? I can speak for your pastors and say, we, we want to hear those. Who do you long to see saved? Who has the Lord already burdened you to tell? How can we as a church pray for that person or for those people? What needs have you seen that you long to see met? How can you bounce ideas off of other wise members on how to consistently and creatively shepherd your kids at home? Let's strive side by side in that. Let's work hard at that. Now, Paul wouldn't be calling us to this if he didn't feel like there wasn't room for us to grow. Steve, Dan, and I long to grow in this way personally and in leading you all to come together in our efforts in striving to spread the gospel to those who haven't heard it 
or those who haven't believed in Jesus. We want that as a church because we want our lives to be worthy of this gospel of Jesus. Another way our lives match the gospel is a bit of an uncomfortable one, not being frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but the spiritual opposition that we face often comes through people opposed to Jesus who then oppose us. We'll get to it in a, in a moment, but the Philippians are well aware that they are extremely and violently opposed. In Philippi, Caesar isn't just king, he's God. And whoever doesn't worship this God is placing themselves in certain danger. It's a hard pill to swallow that being frightened by those who oppose what we're doing or the message that we're t- taking out to the world is not consistent with the gospel. Whether you're sharing the gospel gently and truthfully with a stranger who verbally attacks and accuses you because they feel harassed, or the culture at large is angrily screaming at your definition of marriage or male and female, we should not be afraid of that. One of the main reasons is because we can look at their opposition and our suffering as proof proof that they are headed for destruction and proof that we will be saved. Our salvation is from God, as is their destruction. Asaph in Psalm 73 is frustrated and envious that wicked people can just go on about life and they seem to prosper. They're doing whatever they want and yet they're doing just fine. They curse God and they get away with it. But here's what he says. This is how it comes out of that. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me like a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, when you wake up, You despise them as phantoms. I said that this is an uncomfortable point because I've lived my whole life like the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz, who in a situation or the evil one or someone else shows their teeth, out goes the lion. I'm counting on some people being here who are scared of most things, including their witness of the gospel and some others who are scared of nothing except their witness of the gospel. But either way, being frightened by opponents of the gospel means that we have a lot to learn about our risen Jesus, does it not? That's exactly why Paul prays this for the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1. He's praying that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards who? Us who believe according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as as head over all things to who? The church, to us which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. So whether the sneer of a family member or the barrel of a gun, no threat is meant to frighten us as if what is most precious could be taken from us. Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and has full authority in this age and the age to come. What can man do to me, says the psalmist? To die is gain, says Paul. Too often our fear looks like turning our opponents into friends by compromising the truth or closing our mouths because it's not worth the trouble. Friends, it, it is worth the trouble. And we have the risen king on our side. Not being frightened and standing firm together and sharing the gospel in a unified effort speaks a loud message about our sure future salvation and the future destruction of all of God's enemies. A third way we can grow in further matching the gospel is by, le- by believing this. Suffering for the sake of Christ is a privilege. The king is on our side. He has all authority, and the wicked are headed to judgment. Paul gives one last word considering the fact that he knows what suffering for Christ is like. You could call him an expert. Here's what he says about suffering for Christ. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Granted means something given to us. But what Paul's saying here goes beyond that. He's saying, not only have you been given the privilege of believing in Christ, you have been graciously granted the privilege of suffering for Christ. I can't tell you how many times I've come across that and said, what? Here's what happened to Paul a few short years or even a few months prior to this letter being sent out. Paul and Silas cast a demon from a fortune-telling girl and her owners whip everyone up into a frenzy because Paul and Silas got in the way of their cash flow. And they said this in Acts 16, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe. Having received his order, this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Paul was engaged in an ongoing conflict, one that was very obvious in Rome to be violent and worthy of a beating. But it's a spiritual conflict that has physical teeth, so to speak. And the Philippians are engaged in that same conflict. I picture, when I just hear engaged, I picture two white-tailed bucks with their antlers locked together. The Philippian Christians saw this, what happened to Paul, with their own eyes. They, they're familiar with what believing in Christ and following him might earn them. They might be headed to the same prison. And we're reading it from Acts. But we, 
That's our Grace Church Dayton. Whether it feels like it or not, we're also engaged, locked into that same conflict as Paul in the Philippians. When you get called preacher and are treated differently, when you are the laughing stock, when you're treated as the enemy, that is confirmation of your life matching with the gospel and you're walking in the gracious gift of Jesus himself to have the chance to suffer for him. Now, if you're here wondering, I don't know, I don't know if I'm suffering adequately for the gospel, just know that as you're following Christ, you don't, you don't, be have, to, you don't have to be looking for opposition. We have an enemy. He is an adversary who's prowling around like a roaring lion, waiting for someone, searching for someone to devour. So don't worry. If you, don't, if you look across your life and say, I don't know in what ways or if I can identify that I'm suffering for Christ, know, know that it will come across your path. Now, it probably sounds sadistic to say that Jesus is giving you this gift of suffering for him. But I want to fight with you to believe what God's word says right here. And I was, I was really helped by what a commentator named Jason C. Meyer said. It's a long quote, but I, I hope it encourages us. Faith and persecution are often a package gift. When the flame of faith shines in a dark place, the darkness will try to douse that faith and snuff it out. God writes a persecution story for his church so that mankind will be pointed back to the greatest story, the death and the resurrection of Christ. Persecution is a parable that puts the death and resurrection of Christ on display again and again and again. Persecutors try to kill the faith of believers like they tried to kill Jesus, but faith rises just like Jesus did. When persecutors try everything in their power to kill faith, faith refuses to die. Resurrection power is on display. Opponents should fear because they are actually fighting God and they will lose. God's power preserves our faith. We can take it to the bank. He who began the good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ and nothing in all creation will be able to separate believers from his almighty grip of grace. It has been granted to you, specifically you, specifically to us as Christ's bride. It has been granted to you to believe in Jesus, a gracious gift, gift from God. And also, it has been granted to you specifically to suffer for Christ. Not as payment, but as a proclamation that he is worth more than anything in this world. That's what we're saying when we willingly suffer for his sake. And that's the life that you've walked into as a follower of Jesus. A life where you will be persecuted in some way as your life further and further resembles the good news. But go forward in that without any reason to be afraid with God on our side, standing firm together with this church body in one spirit and with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not afraid of our opponents. In doing so, you will be living a manner, a life, in a manner worthy of this glorious gospel of Jesus.